The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Open your Bibles to Nahum chapter 2. We're going to look at Nahum chapter 2 and chapter 3 this evening. I was kind of hoping prayer requests might actually go a little bit longer because Nahum chapter 2 and chapter 3 are actually some pretty difficult chapters to preach through. Um, somebody had read through it beforehand, actually, that I was speaking with before, before church just a moment ago, and he, he looked at me and he said, I'm interested to see what you're going to do with Nahum chapter 2 and chapter 3, because as you read through it, as the titles even of these chapters in the New King James read, what you find is chapter 2 is all about the destruction of Nineveh, and then chapter 3 is about the woe of Nineveh. Really, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, all we read is a poetic description of the way that God is going to bring judgment upon Nineveh and completely wipe them out. And that's kind of the extent of what we're going to look to tonight. And, and the, the question was, well, what kind of application is there in this? What is there for us today? What is there for you and me living this side of the cross so many years later and this man's wife of great wisdom said, God wrote it in there for a reason, didn't he? Of course he did. There's some, some truth in what we're reading tonight, what we're going to look to. There's an application. These things that were written beforehand were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come, Paul writes. And so there is, there is some good truth from God that ought to speak to us tonight. I've always loved the illustration of the preacher being, in a way, like a coal miner that dives down into the cave of God's Word all week long, and then the, the, the sermon time is actually when the coal miner or, or gin miner comes out and he gets to show the, the gold and the diamonds and the rubies that are within the mine, the, 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 the great truths of God's Word that we dive into the chapter and, and see as we dive deeply and dig deeply into God's Word. And what I have found... When I initially read a portion of God's Word, sometimes I am thinking the same thing, like, God, what is, what is the application here? How does this speak to us? And as you dive in and meditate and pray on God's Word and reread it, those gold nuggets begin to sparkle and shine. And those rubies and those diamonds begin to show through. Where What I hope even tonight, I kind of want to take us on a journey into the cave. And we're going to work through even these two chapters, even though they can kind of bog us down a little bit. But I want you to get the feel of the, uh, really the severity of the judgment of God that's coming upon the city of Nineveh. And the reasoning why this severe judgment is coming upon the city of Nineveh, because of their great wickedness, because of their sin. I think the book of Nahum, if you were with us last week, we really talked about it a lot. The book of Nahum is ignored so much in our day and age because we love to see God as a God of love. And God is love. We rightly know Him through Christ in grace and in mercy. Uh, his heart of compassion and loving kindness to forgive our iniquities and our sins and our trespasses. But we cannot forget the holiness of God or we really make light of His love. But our God is also a consuming fire. But even in the New Testament, in Hebrews, it's written, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That our God has a wrath and indignation towards sin and towards sinners. And until we understand the gravity of our sin and the severity of God's judgment upon us because of our sin, 
we'll never really understand the grace of God and what Jesus bore for us on Calvary at that cross. And so really, Nahum chapter 2 and 3, it's written in a way in our Bible to show us that side of God in His holiness, in His justice, the judgment that He brings upon the wicked. Yes, He's a God of grace and love. Yes, He's a God who delights in forgiveness and He will wipe away the sins of any that turn to Him. Any that in humility desire in repentance His forgiveness. God of His grace lavishly pours it upon us. He, he delights in forgiveness. But God will also sentence and judge those that die in unrepentance. And God will also bring judgment upon the wicked because of the wickedness that they've done in this life. And that's where so many get it wrong. And they think, well, God's just going to ignore those that never turn to Him in, in their wickedness. God's going to ignore their sin and, and His grace is still going to cover them even though they, they live their life in complete rebellion against God and mockery of Him and His ways. And, and they think somehow those people also will someday be forgiven. And that's not... That's not the truth. That's not what God's Word declares. God's Word declares, no, He's holy. And there's only one way, the way of Christ, and repentance and and belief and faith in Him. And if you don't turn to God, then you will be judged. You will be condemned. And God will make right every wrong. God will bring judgment upon the wicked for the injustices, for the atrocities, for the wrongs that they commit, not only against Him, but even against one another, which is a sin against him. Before we dive into the chapter, just to catch you up on the context, Nahum is in a way the sequel to the book of Jonah. And so Jonah was another prophet of God about 100 years prior to the time of Nahum that God sent to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a mighty nation even in Jonah's day. They were an arch enemy of Israel. Uh, that's why Jonah didn't want to go to them. We love the narrative story of Jonah, and it captivates our mind and our attention. And so that book is so well known, whereas Nahum, and some people don't even realize it's in your Bible, um, Jonah was sent, even though he didn't want to go, God got him to where God wanted him to go. And Jonah reluctantly preached that message, you know, 40 days, and God's going to destroy this place because of their wickedness, because of their the cruel injustices and even a just war, the, the tactics of um, extreme cruelty that they embraced, even in their war tactics. And God says, I, I will bring judgment upon you. The city's going to be wiped out, and what happened? The Ninevites repented. They actually put on sackcloth and had a, a city-wide, in a way, revival, turning to the God of Israel, saying, God, we repent. We uh, confess our sin. We ask forgiveness. And God relented of the judgment He was going to pour out. It wasn't very long after that that what happens, the Ninevites return to their same old ways a generation or two later. And here we are a hundred years after that time in the day of Nahum. Assyria has even become more of a dominant power. They, they have taken the northern kingdom of Israel, wiped it out, a lot of people back captive even. They came all the way to Jerusalem's door and God 
performed a miracle basically to um, keep uh, Jerusalem from falling, extended their kingdom, the southern kingdom, for a little while longer. It's been maybe 50, 60 years since the fall of the northern kingdom. Assyria has recovered from that defeat there at Jerusalem when they fled back to Assyria. They are now once again at the height of their power. Uh, They are the dominant army uh, of the world, of the known world in the day and age. And they are a cruel, wicked people of great immoralities, of great injustices, of great wickedness in all of their ways. And so God is once again bringing a prophet to them to warn them of judgment. That though you are the mightiest nation on earth, you're not mightier than God. You can't keep on doing the, the wickedness of humanity and, and, and God just turn a blind eye to it. No, no judgment is coming. God will make God will make every wrong right. I want us to, let me go ahead and just give you the first point, and we'll see it in the, the first chapter, chapter 2, that we'll look to tonight. And I just want to walk through an outline that reveals to us some truths about God, um, some promises about God that we must remember that really drive us to the concluding application that I want us to turn to Psalm 73 to really see, and we'll do that at the very end, that really is God's the one that we have to turn to and trust in. God is the one that our faith ought to be in, no matter what things look like in our lives. No matter how hopeless the situation might look, no matter how great the enemy might look, the nations and powers of this world, the wickedness of our culture even, no matter how far away it drifts from God, and no matter how prosperous it seems when things seem like (laughs) <laughs> the wicked are doing better than the, the, the God-fearers, the God-followers, and it seems like they're prospering in their wickedness, and, and you and I may be striving to follow and serve the Lord, and yet it seems like we're being persecuted and, and ostracized, and, 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 and it seems like it benefit us to do evil. Uh, this book speaks to us, these chapters speak to us to remind us, no, our, our faith still must be in God. That God is worthy of our trust. That in God we must trust, not merely as a nation, but first and foremost as a believer and as a church, as a Christian, in the midst of all that goes on in this life, we're to to turn to God and we're to confide in God and we're not to be filled with fear and anxiety. We're, We're to trust in the Lord, our God, because He is God. And someday, in His timing, when He decides to step forth, as He does for Nineveh in a bad way, when God steps forth, He will judge. And He will establish justice. And so our faith doesn't rest in our own strength or in human intellect or ingenuity or the, the, the government over us or the, the nation we reside in. Our, our faith rests in God and what God is going to do. And even what God has done through Christ. So notice firstly, as we'll begin reading chapter 2, God will bring justice upon the wicked. This is speaking in the context of Nahum in regards to Nineveh, but Nineveh is set forth as an example to us. That in the greatness of the power of the Assyrians, of the Assyrian Empire, of the capital city of Nineveh, the fortress that it was, 
God is setting them forth as an example of those that do wickedness in this life and believe they will prosper and do it forever. And God says, no, there is an end to the wickedness of man. There is an end to the wickedness of every nation. God God makes nations rise and rise up, and God makes nations fall. He is the sovereign God. Chapter 2, verse 1. He who scatters has come up before your face. This is a prophetic, it's got a lot of poetic imagery even, in that it's a prophetic word from Nahum to the Ninevites. And what we're going to read here to give you hopefully an understanding as we read it is Nahum, God speaking through Nahum to say, hey, man, your stations, God's coming. Get, get ready because judgment's about to be outpoured upon you. He who scatters has come up before your face, the sovereign God Almighty. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob, like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. Even though Israel had been taken captive, the northern kingdom, even though Judah had barely escaped the enemy, the Assyrians that came in that first time, and and they were only, honestly, they were weaker in this day than they were even then. They, They had not regained any power. And the Assyrians had gained much more power. And so honestly, if the Israelites or the Assyrians were to come in against the, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, wouldn't have been much of a battle if God weren't on their side. They, Israel was left in ruin, but God says, I will restore the excellence of Jacob that I've called and I made his name to be Israel. Back to the Ninevites, verse 3. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the spears are brandished. All of this poetic imagery of the, the fight that Nineveh would put up against God. Not, not, not coming to a humble brokenness over their sin as they did through the prophet Jonah. Uh, but here they're bucking against God. They're fighting against God. They're saying, who is the God of Israel that we ought to submit to Him? Get the armies ready. The chariots rage in the street. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers His nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls and the defense is uh, prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed she shall be led away captive. The greatest nation on planet earth, Nahum, who's from one of the weakest, smallest nations, the nation of Judah, is bringing a word from the God of Israel, the God of Judah. Assyria, Nineveh, you will be led away captive. She, Nineveh, shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves, beating their breasts, mourning, grieving over the the downfall of Assyria. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. That pool of water would be a picture of an oasis in the desert. It was a magnificent city in the midst of a remote area that was splendid even in its appearance and, and was a draw from all who were around the might of Nineveh in this day. Now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. 
Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. It's, a, it, again, poetic imagery of, of uh, the downfall of this great city and all of their wealth, all of their riches being taken um, as what happens when one nation conquers another. She is empty, desolate and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side and all their faces are drained of color. Uh, the emotions of when pride is brought to humility. When they who think they will never fall are overtaken and overrun. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Here he's portraying Nineveh as even the might of a lion who has no home. Where is the lion... Uh, where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's club, and no one made them afraid. Uh, the might of Assyria, they, like a lion, had no fear. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Uh, imagery speaking to the cruelty of the Ninevites and what they did to all the other nations that they overcame. Verse 13, God speaking. Behold I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. You've got to pause there for a moment and feel the weight of that one statement. God is for us. You know, we, we love the thought of God being for us. God being the one who can work our dreams and fulfill our ambitions and give us the prosperity and health and wealth that we desire. Imagine this being said. Behold, God says, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. That when a person lives in rebellion against God and does not turn to Him in humble brokenness over their sin, but says, I will live like I want to live and do what I want to do. I don't want God to define anything for me. I don't want to follow His Word in regards to what it says regarding how I ought to live and the things I ought to do and the things I ought not to do. I want to do it my way. I am the master of my fate. I, I don't need God. What I want is blessings. I want Him to be for me. I want Him to lead and guide me. I want Him to answer the prayer that I pray when my, my, my grandma gets cancer or, or another situation comes up and and, and I, I all of a sudden am realizing I am not in control. I need some help. I want God to be for me then. But God says here to the Ninevites, Behold, I am against you. That there are people on this earth that God is against because of their wickedness, because of their hard-heartedness before God, because of their rebellious heart that does not seek Him nor follow after Him. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and your voice, uh, the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. And what Nahum prophesied, what God spoke through Nahum came true. In 712, I believe it is, the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians. Nineveh, the great mighty city that was beyond, beyond anyone's imagination of falling, that anyone could overcome the might of the city of Nineveh and the walls, the walls that they built and the army that they had established as God declared it here. So it happened. And you realize history tells us the city of Nineveh was literally wiped off the map 
that generations would go by and read of this city, but not really know its location. Even all throughout early church history, it was not until, I believe it was the 1800s, that the city of Nineveh was discovered once again. What God declared of them, He brought to pass. He brought a great judgment upon them. God will bring justice upon the wicked. It may not come like we think it's going to come. It may not come when we think it ought to come. God is a patient God. But hear me, it will come. It's, it's hard to think that God would send a person to eternal hell. And there's a lot of people that they, they take the view of God that God is love and they say, well, well, God would never be able to do that. But we read in our Bible, He will and He does. When people die in hard-hearted rebellion against God, they must pay for the consequences of their sin. And Jesus spoke about hell more than He did about heaven. That's a true statistical fact in our Bible. There are more words about His teaching about those that die in in rejection of God. Those that die in their hard-hearted stubbornness of their sin. Uh, God judges. God sins and condemns to hell. God will bring justice upon the wicked. Sometimes it happens in the here and now, but it will happen eternally. Those that die without Him. Those that die in rebellion against Him. Notice going back to verse 2, a second truth I want to bring to your attention. God will defend His people. God will judge the wicked, but God will also defend His people. Those that turn to God, even in the midst of them enduring the afflictions of the wicked and what the wicked are doing to them. In the end, God carries them through. God redeems. God restores. God reestablishes them. In the midst of chapter 2 and chapter 3, a whole lot of bad words going to Nineveh. Verse 2 is the the one positive verse in all of this. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob. In a way, God is bringing the judgment upon Nineveh in the process of of leading Israel to repentance and to restoration, to to restore the excellence of Jacob, the trickster, the supplanter, the one that God of His grace calls to be His own, to be a a great people. Jacob's name has changed to Israel. Like the excellence of Israel. God, even in the midst of this word of great judgment, reiterates the purpose that He has in it all. That He is going to make of His people, those that follow Him, that remnant that turns to Him, and repentance and faith, He is going to bring an excellence upon them. He is going to redeem them and protect them and restore them and renew them. That is a great truth. It's a great truth to apply to your life and my life as we live in the midst of a time that we look at, I'm looking at it and thinking, Lord, how how can things get so twisted and so backwards and so just illogical, even just pure illogic taking over right now in a way that is just completely opposite of the goodness of God's truth that He reveals to us in our Word as far as sexual morality and even sexual identity. Um, as far as even all the things going on within education and views that are out there that are so anti-God, anti-biblical, anti-truth. It's easy to get worked up. 
It's easy to get fearful and to think, goodness, what's going to happen when my kids are growing up in this mess of this world? Is there going to be a church 10 years from now or 20 years from now? 20 years from now or, and you can get into that state of worrying and of fear. And, and God doesn't call us to worry or fear. He actually calls us to remember God's got this whole thing in His hands. God will take care of His people. There will be a church. And God will not let His people fail and His people perish. No, we will continue. And even when we get to eternity, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We will continue forever with our Lord. It's not that that we will be brought to an end, that the people of God will um, be overtaken by the wickedness of this life or the wicked people of this world. No, God, God will deliver His people. God will defend His people. Notice thirdly and lastly, chapter 3, that in the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. Even though we look around us right now and we see the spiritual warfare even of this life, of this world, and, and Satan even being the prince of the power of the air, and we see it within our culture, and, and all that imagery even of light and darkness and the Gospel of John and in the, the writings of, of the New Testament, that there is a, a war of light and darkness. There's a tension, there's a struggle, there's a battle to be fought, a war to be fought. What we, why we sleep well at night is the the good old southern gospel song is true. I've read the back of the book and we win. And we win because God wins. And if you're on God's side, following after Him, you win in God. Because He has overcome, we shall overcome. Nahum's writing what he's writing, God delivering it for Israel to know, listen, though Assyria seems like they are mighty and powerful and dominant and going to do whatever they want for as long as they want, you know I'm truly God, Right? You know I'm going to bring an end to their wickedness. And I'm going to bring them down and judge them. And I will renew you. And I will restore you. I will defend you through it all. In the end, God is letting them know, listen, I, I win. It may seem like there's a battle going on, but, but ultimately it's a lost battle they're fighting. God is God and there is no other. Woe to the bloody city, verse 1. It is all full of lies and robbery. The description here of their sins and iniquities that God is judging them for. Its dictum never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of the of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells uh, nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries, speaking of the idolatry and just wicked, even cultic practices that were going on there that they would force upon nations that they conquered after they left so many dead. Um, even um, other historical evidences of the just cruel tactics of even forming pillars of bodies around the city just as a, a sign to any nation that would stand against them. Um, of their might and power and the cruel things that they would do to those that they overcame. Behold, God says again, verse 5, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness. God's saying, I'm going to expose you for the wicked people that you are. 
And the kingdoms, your shame, I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will be bold her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than no Ammon? Uh, that was a Hebrew name for the Egyptian city of Thebes that was in southern Egypt, a city of great might and riches, you know, extremely wealthy area city that the Assyrians were actually the ones who overtook them, who um, slaughtered the city and took all their gold. Are you any better than that city, city of Thebes that you overcame that was situated by the river? that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose walls was the sea, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. It says, you know the might of the city that fell, the might of the city that uh, you overcame. What makes you think that God Almighty is not going to overcome you? Verse 10, yes, she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces. Think of the wickedness of the Assyrians as they came into this place. At the head of every street, they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. It says, you also will be drunk, you will be hidden, you also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. The, the fruit of their wickedness had come to a place where God's judgment was coming. They are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in, uh, in the midst of... Our women, the gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. The strength of the city wall and the gate would not be enough. Draw for your water, for the siege, fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. The strength in their numbers would fail. No strength of numbers will stand against the judgment of God. Neither will their commanders and their leaders, verse 17. Your commanders are like swarming locusts, and your generals like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. Like a locust getting squashed and locusts flying away and not having a home. And he's saying, even your leaders will have no city to return to when I'm done. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. And then lastly, last verse, all who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? And that's the end of Nahum. <laughs> the, the nations, the world is going to applaud when God does away with them because they have been such a plague upon the earth. Their wickedness has affected so many and their cruelty and injustice. In the end, God wins. This is a hard book of the Bible, which is why it is so ignored in our Bible. 
it, it reveals to us that side of God that makes us a little bit uncomfortable because we know we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And if you're here and you're in your sin, and you're here thinking, I don't have to turn to God, you're here thinking, I can do it my own way and it's going to be all right. No, no, Nahum is written here to let you know that God is holy. God will judge the sinner of wickedness. But Nahum, we looked at last week in chapter 1, as we see in chapter 2 and verse 2, also reveals to us a side of God that God is good. And he begins even in chapter 1 by quoting that great revelation that God gave to Moses, Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, um, gracious and merciful, showing loving kindness to generation upon generation, forgiving iniquity, delighting in that. But he's a God who by no means clears the guilty. When you die in the guilt of your sin without repentance, without turning to Him, you pay the penalty for your sin. He will execute justice. But hear me, He's a God who delights in forgiveness. If you turn to Him, He he forgives you. He, He delights in showing just how loving and gracious and merciful He is. And all of this leads us even to the cross of Christ, where the Son of God incarnate bears the penalty of our sin. He takes that wrath of God that's due to you and me because of His holiness and because of our sinfulness. And that's that's the cup that Jesus drank at Calvary. That's why He looked to God the Father and said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Why did the Father forsake the Son? Because the Father made the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God will judge the sinner. But the sinner dies in his rebellion and his wickedness. But God delights in forgiving the sinner. And the sinner simply humbles himself before God and turns and says, I'm an unworthy sinner. Will you, will you accept me? Will you forgive me? Because of Christ, this side of the cross, we see it all so clearly unfolded. God's provided the way, the truth, and the life. He delights in forgiveness. If you're here and you don't know Him, you've never turned to Him in humble brokenness, do so tonight. Turn to God and repent of your sin. Believe upon Christ and find a Savior. And if you're here and you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you're a believer. Turn with me to Psalm 73 and we'll close with this. Psalm 73 is what I would say is a great application for Nahum chapter 2 and chapter 3. What is God teaching us in Nahum chapter 2 and chapter 3. I think Psalm 73 is a good, is a good application. Now, it's not written in light of that. It was written much before the time frame of Nahum. It's a psalm of Asaph. But we, nonetheless, I think what he writes speaks powerfully to the feelings of Israel in that day and age, of an Israelite looking at the might and prosperity of Assyria. Um, let's read it and then we'll close. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance, and 
They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Meaning, in a way, they say whatever they want and do whatever they want and they're better all, all the better for it. They're prospering in all that they do. And, and the, the writer of this psalm says, I, I look to them in their wickedness and, and I, I'm finding myself in a bad place because I'm envious of the wickedness they're doing and the prosperity that they're receiving because of it. Therefore, as people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Saying, God, God can't stop me. I'll do what I want. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocent for all day long. I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, this dilemma that he saw in the prosperity of the wicked and the affliction of the righteous, he said it was too painful for me until what? I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the church house of that day and age and I heard a word from God. And God corrected my wrong, temporary, finite view of things in the here and now. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was Vexed in my mind, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Heavenly Father, I pray that the psalm that we read would be true of every believer in this room. That as we can look at this world and get fearful and think that the wicked are prospering and doing whatever they want for as long as they want, Lord, may we come into your sanctuary and be reminded, no, you are God and someday you're going to step forth. Lord, you will judge. It will be a, a severe day for so many that, that are living just wickedness against you and in mockery of you and your people. But Lord, for those that turn to you, what a day of glory it will be when you make all wrong right. Lord, when you establish true peace and true justice for your people. Lord, may we turn to you in the midst of all that we go through and find a, tr a faith, a trust in you that leads us to keep on keeping on. And to continue even in the 
the days in which we live where it seems like so many are drifting further away from you to know, no, no, you're God. You, you've got this all under control. We just simply follow you, obey you, Lord, do as you call us to do. Lord, you'll take care of the rest. I pray bring peace upon any that may need it tonight. And if there be any here that don't know you as Lord and Savior, may they now in this invitation even get that settled before they leave this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.